0: Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica. I'm a professor at the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. And today I'm joined by two students from my department, Carly and Jess, and they had the opportunity to be guest hosts for the podcast. So why don't you guys introduce yourself?
1: Hi, my name is Carly Barber. I'm a junior HMP major. I'm from Gora, Maine, and I plan to do my internship this summer at Maine Medical Partners.
2: Hi, my name is Jess Fucci. I'm a junior here at UNH, HMP major. I'm from Millis, Massachusetts, and I'm doing my internship this summer at Dana-Farber in Boston.
0: So who did you guys interview for the podcast?
1: We interviewed Sue DeMarco, who is the director of organizational development at
0: Exeter Hospital. And what did you learn about her job?
2: So we talked a lot about how she coaches people on emotional intelligence and things like that. And one thing i found really interesting was how she took a untraditional path to get to where she was today and she worked really hard to get there which i admired yeah
1: i learned that her various certifications kind of helped her to advance her career and um, learn more and she still continues to do even more certifications to learn
2: more about her field
0: okay is this a thing you you guys uh, had had known about or really had studied before
2: No, we kind of just started learning about things like that this semester, so it was nice timing, I think.
0: Okay, let's let's go ahead and listen to Carly and Jess talk with Sue DeMarco.
2: Welcome to The Forge, Sue. Well, thank you, Jess. All right, so our first question today is, where are you originally from, and did you always know you wanted to go to college in New England and eventually settle here for your career?
3: Well, it may surprise you. I am originally from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I grew up in New Hampshire. Not that many natives to Portsmouth or to New Hampshire, I think, anymore. But no, I didn't always know that I was going to go to school in New England. But it was UNH is where my brother went. And I, before we started, I was telling you a little bit about my grandmother being a Polish immigrant. And so I would be part of the first generation in my family to go to college. So it was something that was really prized, if you could get an education, and it was something that it was, you are going to go to college. And UNH was in our backyard. UNH was the place to go. Not having other people in the family headed off to college. So I guess in some ways you'd say, yes, I always knew I was going to go there. It never really entered my mind about other places. I did look briefly at URI. I looked at a program there, but I really knew part of it was financial, part of it was just being the first generation. And this was, this was here and it was a good school. And I actually, I liked UNH so much. I went back and I went to grad school there. And I also taught for UNH and still teach for them. So it, it has worked thus far.
2: So as you said, you went to the University of New Hampshire for your undergrad. What did you study there?
3: Well, surprise again, I didn't study healthcare. I was in health studies, but hold on, I was in parks and recreation. So you probably would not expect that, but I will tell you some of the connections as we get a little further. And I always say, hold on, because most people, I think, will look at that and they're like, there's you know, no relationship and as my father would say, basket weaving, what are you doing? You know, (laughs) your brother's gonna be a lawyer and you know. So they would look at that. But my goal when I was about your age is I was studying Spanish. I started off a psychology major in Spanish and then I went to Spanish as my minor and I really wanted to work with inner city kids. That's really was my goal. And I thought, Well how do you influence kids? How do you influence? And I thought "It's, it's one of two things. You either have to be a teacher uh, as some form of a role model or I really wanted to work with them and I thought coaches are people that are, are really instrumental and I thought well there's more to it than just physical education. There's this whole whatever is of interest to that person. So that was kind of how I got into the field. Plus, I grew up, uh, summertime, we have a camp up in the White Mountains, so I was always active outside. So I liked the parks and all of that. So that's how I combined it. So that was the field that I originally went into.
2: Okay. And as you said, again, you went on to get your master's in public administration at UNH as well. Uh, did you do that right after you finished your undergrad? And what drew you to getting a master's in that particular field? Okay, no, I didn't. I was I was
3: in the I was fortunate. I landed in municipal recreation, and and I say fortunate because I think really that guided my career path here. At the age of twenty one or twenty two, I was responsible for budgets and for hiring and firing. So pretty quickly or early on, I learned that I had leadership skills. And so I was managing people and having, unfortunately, to fire people on occasion, managing revenue. So I got that at an early age. And then um, working in in municipal government, I looked at what would be the next step for me. And I looked at, I had considered occupational therapy. And then since I was in the municipal setting, I thought it was either going to be an MBA or an MPA in public administration. And at the time, the public administration seemed much more relevant. And so I went back to that with, um, my focus was really on outdoor and the environment, outdoor recreation, and spent my time while I was working, going school nights for that at UNH.
2: And when did your interest in the healthcare field develop. Have you always had that interest specifically in human resources? No, this is my first, being at
3: Exeter Hospital is the first time I've been in human resources. As I mentioned, I spent probably 20 years managing in the world of parks and recreation. So I was down in Narragansett, Rhode Island. So I had, um, I was primarily men that reported to me and they were in two different unions. So I was in a management setting and we had a lot of business entities. We had a um, wedding venue, which was the historic, I don't know if you're familiar with Rhode Island, they have the towers. So that was a wedding venue and historic setting that was my responsibility, a working farm that was my responsibility, uh, beach pavilions that were leased and contracted and rented Many parks and then athletic facilities. So, I actually it was the business end of the of a municipal setting. So I learned the human resources by being a manager in it. I learned about you know the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act. I learned about employment practices. I learned about hiring and firing, uh, managing um, and grooming people for other positions just by doing it. Wasn't actual coursework. Um, so that was really my career. And the public administration was, was really setting me up for a position as a town or city manager. So that was my next step. That's where I was headed, and I ended up coming back. It is in between marriages, my, my husband getting a promotion, and so you know changing my career to come back to New Hampshire. And I ended up working for the town of Narragansett. So again, managing their budgets, managing the departments, and that's really that was my background. It was by chance that I ended up in healthcare, And it was because of family illness. My mom being diagnosed terminally ill with 12 weeks to live. And then my father having dementia. So I left my job. I actually, um, they allowed me to take a leave of absence. And then I went back. And it was just not going to be feasible with two little kids and being able to do all of those things. So I left to take care of my dad, help my dad out. And so the job here was a part-time job. It was setting up lectures for the doctors, and I could work out of my house. And my husband was retiring, and we were going to spend more time with the kids. So it truly was one of those, you know, kind of fortuitous, I got a job, and I organized lectures, which was you know, when you organize, I organized events in my old job. I organized programs and I did the advertising. I hired the people. I did the planning. So it was the same thing for the lecture series, but just a different content. So that's how I ended up in healthcare.
1: Um, so you have been at Exeter Hospital for about 17 years. I know you had mentioned you had moved back to New Hampshire, but what drew you to um, Exeter in the first place?
3: Well, it was the, the part-time opportunity, but I'm actually, I'm in my 19th year, and I'll be, um, so I, I envision that I probably will be here for the rest of my career, three, four more years, and I... Um, you know, this is a community hospital, and I like the community. I like the, the nature of that um, being, you know, you see your family, your family friends get their care here, so I think that's important to me. So what about Exeter makes it a great place to work? Well, truth be known, I've been here a long time because of the people, and I, we have interviewed some people, and I was sitting with uh, some of the nursing staff, and the person being interviewed asked me, what's your favorite thing? Like, what what keeps you here? And I said, the commitment of the people that I work with, they are just so dedicated, and they're so bright, and they're just so passionate about taking care of people. And I looked, and a couple of the nurses, are they're teared up and everything. And I'm, and I'm like, you know, that I know it sounds hokey, but it's absolutely true. And the way I look at it, and I think this comes from the years that I've been teaching is if you want to improve, you surround yourself with people that are knowledgeable, they are lifetime learners, they are wanting to learn, and they're wanting to be the pe- the best. So what I think about this job and what I think about working here is it's made me become much more. It's made me... Um, learn more and do more and be more and so what more could you ask for right i i like that so you started here as a senior education specialist in organizational development could you tell me a little bit about that sure sure so i mentioned how i got in the part-time nature of the work and then I, you know, having gone through a divorce, I said, I'm going to have to really beef this up, and I have to start a whole second career. So I thought about it, and I thought, what do people typically not like to do? And I'm not going to become a physician, I'm not going to become a nurse, so what am I going to contribute here? And I thought, people are afraid of public speaking. So if I can get really good at that, then maybe I've got, you know, a little niche. And I've got my background. What I didn't realize is I thought everybody had managed people, having started at such a young age of UNH, I was like 21, 22, with a whole staff and managing budgets. I just thought everybody had that experience. And in working, as funny as this may sound, but the director of development, he and I were in grad school. Actually, he was behind me, and he has the same sort of background, and we often laugh about people would never equate our background to bring us into this kind of work, the relationships. But when you work in a municipality and you work with little kids, you work with the parents, you work with the elderly, you work with PTAs, school superintendent, you work with politicians, you really start to learn about personalities and you start to learn about meetings and navigating groups and group dynamics. So that grassroots, that really was the greatest training ground for me so when I I had that background I thought how am I going to really kind of capitalize on that so the person who's in the office next door was managing all the corporate orientation every week and she would present all day long so I went to her and I said you know I'd like to volunteer to help you out and she said oh my god you know no I haven't had a day off doing this yes so she went to her boss who's the VP of HR I was in uh, I was working for the president of core at the time that's where it rolled up to. And she, she said she wants to help us. And this, Lisa went into, was going into a role as corporate communications specialist. And so they said, well, let's try Sue. And so I tried it. And, and I was the only one with background in management and supervisory skills Everybody else, you know, they they didn't have anybody to teach that. And because I actually lived in that world, they said, you can teach that. So I started teaching that. So I started teaching communication, conflict, difficult conversations, uh, team building, management, moving from peer to supervisor, all of those sorts of things. And the more I started to teach... The more calls I would get, do you think you could come in and work with my staff? Do you think you could come in and work with this person? Do you think you could come in and do a training? And so the training would lead to what we call an organizational development interventions. You go in, you have a diagnosis about a team, and you work with the team. So it's less on the training and more about what does that team need to either operationalize or to really maximize all of the capabilities and the strengths on the team. So...
1: So you mentioned some aspects of organizational development. What exactly
3: is it? You know, it's funny. Before yesterday, I said I better do a little bit of search on how they define <laughs> this. You know, how do you define it? But I really, you know, you, you in the in the work world, we're here. For a specific purpose, we have goals, we have strategic initiatives, and our goal is to provide the best health care to the community. So we want to be a leader in the community. We want to provide quality care, but so does Wentworth Douglas and so does. So we all want to do that. But we also know, walking down the hall, we were talking about, you know, with President Trump, We don't know what's going to happen with reimbursement. We don't know how that's going to all shake out, but we do know that we have to be cost effective. We have to deliver these services in the best way possible, but we also have to do it cost effectively so that we're not layering a process on. and We're not wasteful. So that's the business end. And in order for any business to execute on these things, it's the people how do we engage the people? So organizational development is really about the people component. How do we communicate? How do we engender behaviors? How do we build a culture where people bring their best self? They really are motivated, they're committed, they do their best work. And so it's really merging that the human, as they say, human capital, that side in order to provide an environment that people do their best work but we deliver the best we can for the organization and the people that we serve. So does every organization have an organizational development person like yourself? And haven't found too many of them around New Hampshire. more so in you know, do you get down around Boston more so? Uh, there are a few in New Hampshire. I know Concord Hospital does. I know Elliot, I think St Josephs, so there are a few, but we just recently hosted Seacoast Organizational Development Network, a first meeting, mostly because they're just scattered. They're few and far between, and we thought we'd just bring people together and just network and just get, Get an idea of who's doing what for work around here. And many people in this area are consultants. They'll go into Boston and they'll do some of the work. But, you know, Portland, you talked about going up to Portland. Maine Med has people that do that. So there are some people, but it's not like, a you know, it's not huge departments of it. You usually find it or often will find OD people in HR. So what made you choose this as a career path versus other options in exiting? Well, you know, uh, well, first off, my my entry in was a little different than most. Like, you're looking at where your career's going. This was one of those uh, detours that I wasn't planning. But I really feel blessed because I look back and I learned tons in my first career of about 20 years which then brought me into teaching at a university that I loved, that the teaching allowed me to come into the corporate, you know, into the healthcare environment, which I love. So I feel like, um, you know, you really, in this day and age, you have to be a lifelong learner. And so I feel I've been blessed at each stage. I've been doing something I've really enjoyed. And when the time was right, now I'm in something that I enjoy. I think I probably had an even better run on this one. I'm liking it and learning tons. So...
1: So you have also previously worked as a senior talent manager specialist at Exeter. In that role, you talked about succession planning. Can you tell me what this is? Sure.
3: Um, That, you know, the succession planning, and we've kind of got it a little bit on the back burner right now, but we modeled... We originally went into a model, and I don't know if you look at it at all, but it was based upon GE. And GE had a, and many of the corporations do a real formalized, what they call like a nine block model. And what they basically do is take a look at the people they have and they do an assessment of their skills. They take a look at what are the mission critical positions in any business or organization. Who do you really, if they got hit by a bus, God forbid, or if they said, you know what, I got a better job in Boston, who, you know, where are these gaps that would really be a potential uh, risk for the organization? So those are mission critical. Then you look at who do I have working there that we, that we know, we have a real good assessment as to what their strengths are, what their gaps are, whether or not the gaps are, you know, training that can be filled or are they behavioral gaps and would that person be um, in a certain block, they would call it ready and promotable. And then it might be somebody that you look at it and their skill set, they would not ever really be able to be in that position in a near future to move to that ninth block. So, But you might have people close by, and then you identify what is it they need in order to get there. So it's really proactively looking at positions you have that are really essential for an organization, and if there was a gap, that could be a potential risk, uh, looking at what you have for your human resources and how you can either... um, Get those people ready for that, or are, are you searching for someone for that?
1: So you have now been in the role of the Director of Organizational Leadership at Exeter since 2008. What is the favorite part of your job?
3: Well, there are a few aspects I, I really love. I do love um, the curriculum design um, which is like the teaching aspect. I like the creativity of the curriculum design. I love the presentation piece to it because um, I love working with the staff. And I very much enjoy the team interventions. And, again, because that I find that very creative, it changes depending upon what you need. And I also like the coaching because there's the one-on-one relationship. Awesome.
1: Um, So tell me a little bit
3: about your day-to-day activities and responsibilities. So right now, um, I'm going to be hiring another organizational development person to work for me. And I think that's part of Chris's, my boss, his move for some succession planning. Also we have some major initiatives going on in the organization. So I, this morning when I came in, I... We rotate who is managing our huddles. We have 15-minute stand-up huddles for each of the businesses, and they'll be what they call Tier 1, Tier 2, and Tier 3. Tier 2 is the managers. So this week was my week to go and to lead the huddle. So that might be something that, you know, as a manager that I would do. As I was leaving, talking with a manager who does quality improvement, and we're talking about we are starting an initiative on – high reliability, safe and reliable health care, which is really focused on the culture of safety. And the part of the culture of safety is being okay with asking questions, being okay with being wrong. we're talking about you know you're not doing it right and somebody is really okay about giving you the feedback in order to correct that that there's a certain comfort in that comfort level with that rather than being defensive or rather than, oh my gosh, there you know uh, their power levels up here. I don't feel comfortable saying that. So that's one of our things that one of our initiatives that we're really looking at, integrating with our lean, our process improvement. Because the process improvement tools are good, but what we're finding is, you know, th- that sometimes it's uncomfortable for people if they don't know something. They feel like they should know it. We've got a, you know, I mentioned, I think we are really smart people. So I think there's this feeling like I gotta know the answer. You know, I can't look like I don't know what I'm doing here. And that that inhibits you from asking somebody for, you know, how might you do it? Or what are you seeing that I'm not seeing? So we're really trying to bring meld those two together. So that was a conversation that we're gonna continue, but I had briefly. I'm working on presentations that I do. We have a presentation coming up with physicians on what we call expectations for excellence at XR, which are some of the behaviors that go along with the clinical. Setting in the clinical areas, so I spend. I, I developed a coaching module for our HR partners. So over five sessions, working with them on using a particular coaching model. So I, and I was just got a call yesterday about going over to another one of our companies, working with a particular team of managers and doing a team intervention with them. So that's kind of that's the day to day. And for me, frankly, I like that it's varied and I like that it's creative. So that works that that fits me. You often work with surgeons and clinicians? Uh what is it you do for them? Well, I don't know about often. I do work, well, often with clinicians, sometimes with surgeons. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would do with them, I'm actually coaching one physician now and another physician approached me about coaching. She, she is going to be new in our organization and wanted to do some behavioral coaching and working with one physician now. Of course, As they move from a medical, you know, that medical expertise in the clinical and many of the things that really were part of the medical model for learning, that strong, competitive, you know, you're pretty much in this yourself, you know, you to be self-reliant, doesn't always work as well for the collaborative team setting. So learning some of the leadership and behavioral styles, learning, and a good bit of it starts with the self-awareness. So that they get an idea of really, they haven't spent the time to look at who they are and how they show up when they're doing these things and then what potential impacts that might have and what it looks like and how it can be interpreted and where do they really want a team to go and how might we be able to get that person or that group there. So I do the same with clinicians. I had a person in the OR. I had a director in, a, you know, another uh, department. So that's pretty much what I do. And it didn't. I use what we call the 360s. So we get an assessment, total assessment, and then they get data because in medical setting, people really value the data. So this is all, you know, uh, verifiable and validated tools that I'd be using. And then they look at that, and then we see in a kind of, we have a total picture, but then we see, so what are the behaviors that actually might make somebody say that about you or think that? So you had mentioned behavioral coaching. Tell me a little bit about what that is. Okay. Well, most times when people come in for coaching, there are blind spots. We all have blind spots. And I mean, it's just that we're not perfect beings. So we all have blind spots and we tend to have a set of strengths And most times we maximize those strengths, which is a good thing. And then oftentimes we can overdo some of those strengths. And a lot of times they're around behaviors and they may be barriers for our next step or impediments in performance. And until we recognize what they are, till we kind of observe them, we see them in action, and then we start to develop some practices. And that's what a good coach will generally do, is help with the awareness, but then also help with what is a practice so that you can actually catch yourself, you're observing yourself, um, and then report back to the coach. And then from that, we might try another practice and um, it's really about developing some of those habits or really with coaching, it's not changing your personality. It's maybe just expanding the lens and your your own operating system a little bit. So you developed a new member training program. Tell me a little bit about that. Right. The, it's actually the new managers that we come in and that, that come into our organization. So we've had this in place for about nine years. Um, started it when Chris... Right around when Chris started, we had some other programs, actually we got a lot of UNH staff that would come in from business and professional development. And at the time, we were trying to keep things, for financially, we were trying to tighten things a little bit more, so we decided to use Subject Matter Experts Within. So it has grown, it started as a smaller program and it's grown now to nine modules. This is for any new supervisor, uh, might be a clinical leader, new manager, director, We even had physicians in it. So it's a broad audience, which sometimes makes teaching to a broad, you know, broad array of kind of starting points, but it would be new to the organization or new to their role of leadership. And so we now have nine modules that are taught by subject matter experts internally. And so they start with things like what is leadership, your leadership role, a little bit on from the human resources so people have a grasp of the policies and the professional conduct, what's expected, and then we go into things like emotional intelligence, which I teach. We also do leading change, which I teach. We have a topic called just culture. So people from the risk management in the clinical setting, they'll talk about how do you determine if somebody made an error? Was it an error because it was just purely a mistake or was it an error because it was malicious? Well, it's two different things. So there, they have logarithms that how you deal with people for errors because you want people, especially in a medical setting, if there's an error, you, you need to know about that to correct it. So it's, it's the way in which the the era is responded to is it disciplinary or is it this is knowledge and we have to retrain so there's different there's really kind of a flow chart so there's a different method that you would deal with each then we have classes on um, strategy we have classes on crucial conversations Kevin Callahan does one of our concluding ones, which is about the art of leadership, setting context, how good leaders set context for their folks. And then the last one is a coaching roundtable where they've had leadership concerns or issues. Might be a personal leadership, might be a business leadership. We work in small groups. The HR partners that have been trained in coaching, we will have them facilitate and we use a, a method, Humble Inquiry, from Edgar Schein, we use a model where people are only, they're coached, and it's done through inquiry so that we don't say, you know what you really should do? You should do, that. We, it's more about, uh, tell me what you have done, you know, how has that worked? What have you seen? What would you like to try next? So it's really trying to get the managers to learn the skill of staying in inquiry, but it's also trying to help that person, the manager, come to what their next steps with this particular issue are.
1: So, you're responsible for the onboarding for the senior leadership and executive members. What is this role
3: like? The onboarding program is a um, if for again, for the that senior level when they're coming in, you can envision the amount of times that is spent with behavioral interviewing, and sometimes they search firms. So there's a lot of time and money to get the right person. And we tell people, you know, we're this as a culture, and we're this, and your job's going to be this. And then oftentimes you bring somebody in, and you don't even tell them where the restroom is. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like that people hit the ground running. So part of this is making sure that a new leader feels that they made the right choice and that they're being assimilated in the organization. And the way we do this is by right away building some of those key relationships that they're going to need. So we have, it's a 90-day program. So we have a flow chart. We have an agenda of appointments. And then we have like an addendum. So if you come into a, a specific company like Rockingham Visiting Nurse Association and Hospice, you'll come through the corporate appointments but then you'll also have an addendum of appointments so for the leaders they'll meet Kevin Callahan our president and CEO they'll meet our vice president of strategy they'll meet our president of core vice president in clinical if they're in a clinical nature, a clinical setting, our Vice President of Human Resources. They'll meet people in accounting, key people, key people in purchasing. They'll meet key people in facilities because they might be managing multiple sites, off-site. So who do you call if there's been, you know, something breaks? So what we do is we have the appointments, but we have them so that you're face-to-face. You go where that person's office is, so you start to learn the person, we have a template, an agenda. So they are key topic areas so that people have an idea because it doesn't happen every day. So these are the things, main pieces, and they develop them, main talking points that they need to cover. And so that takes roughly 90 days. And then I'm the last person that they see. And so mine is, how's the experience been? What have they learned? What is the feel that they have gotten from the organization? What has the culture been like? You know, who might be missing from this group? And we also assign a buddy to them. So they have a buddy manager. And it's not somebody in their area. It's somebody from another area that generally the key attributes are they're positive. They've been here. They want to make sure that this person gets introduced to people. Their job is they show up the first day and say, hey, let's meet for coffee. So there's a friendly face. Because just like you were coming in and you were circling, (laughs) we have new people come in. It's like... Uh, what is this conference from five? Well, you don't want to call your boss and say, come down here circling in. I have no idea what CR5, what that even means. We have a ton of acronyms. So if you can pick up the phone and call someone that's your buddy and say, hey, what? what's it? Where is this? Where's this parking lot? Where's this? I don't get this. You don't feel, you know, you're not an intrusion. That's the expectation. So it's purely social. You know, make the introductions, check in. What do you need? Oh, yeah, that's, you know, staff health? No, it's not on site. It's like two miles down that way. Somebody just to kind of be a friend, a buddy for those first 90 days. And the good news is I just had two. We have a brand new director in information technology. And we have a person that is in um Health Information Management, they're both brand new, and independently I met with them and I said, so tell me, what do you think, what have you noticed since you've been here? And they both said, people are really friendly, committed, they're going out of their way, and they're really excited about making change and improvements. Actually, I went and I sent that off to the president. I said, you know, all of the things that we're putting in place to try to get to engender this, This is what's unsolicited, what's coming back. And then they shared where they came from and some of the differences. So we want people to feel like, yeah, I made the right decision. And those first 90 days are huge. You know, you feel like, you know, it's hard. It's hard. They come in at big jobs. It's hard. You don't need to go looking for, you know, where's the restroom and where's the where can I get a cup of coffee? Just somebody to help you feel like, hey, you got some people that you can just, you know, get some, some information or just general info that'll help you out. That's great. It must make the transition a lot better for them. It, we've had great feedback. You know, the first people say is, wow, that's a lot of appointments and we don't do like eight hours of appointments, but we definitely say the first, within the first three days, you meet the president and CEO. You meet at the, We try to structure it that way. And it's not, you know, we do a half hour, my meetings a half hour, hour if it's something that's really, like we might have our CFO, depending on if it's a major area, the CFO might be an hour with that person, or at least the person, our comptroller might be an hour with them about budget stuff. But it's really depending upon their position and the, the person they're meeting with.
2: Okay, right, So you've m- briefly mentioned the phrase CORE a few times. Mm-hmm. So would you mind just explaining to me what that stands sure. for?
3: Sure. CORE is our physician's uh, organization within Exeter Health Resources. So Exeter Health Resources is our company, and we have Exeter Hospital, Rockingham Visiting Nurse Association and Hospice, and then CORE Physicians Organization, which is about roughly about 160 providers, so primary care and specialty care. So that is um, so the physicians' offices that are offsite. Um, you might see some. Actually, I think we have some in Mill Pond and Durham, in Plastow, Kingston, Exeter. Those are all part of the core physicians' practice.
2: Awesome. You've also briefly touched upon emotional intelligence. Would you mind telling me a little bit about that and how you feel it relates to the workplace?
3: Yeah. What
2: What is said about emotional intelligence is at when you get to a
3: certain level. If there's something that's going to derail you, that's typically what will derail a leader. Now, that's what that's what's, the research has shown and what has been said at a certain level. There's some sort of biased, I like this aspect, I, you know, I like that part of my field. But when you're in your early stages, a lot of times you're really needing the technical expertise. And we even say this when we do corporate orientation, You can't get through the door without a certain technical expertise. There are certain licenses, there are certain accreditations, there are certain things that you must have. After that, we hire based upon your values because we know that we can train you. If you come in and you have the values that we aspire to, we can train you on how to do this template or use this tool. But we can't really train you around integrity, compassion, empathy you can learn some of these but if we if we can hire for that then we've shortened that what we have to really assist you on so we we try to hire for that and then we sometimes get into situations where people are elevated we oftentimes take the best technical person although we're getting a little bit better at this taking the best technical and elevating them to a supervisory level and sometimes further and then the what is not really lacking, but what's not their strength has been that emotional intelligence, meaning they don't have a perspective of their own behaviors. They don't understand their emotions. They may be not be in tune with how they are, emotions are perceived in others. They may see it, but not have a real regard for it. They may not know how to channel emotions for um, improvement or change, because you can't really motivate anybody. And you, know, you think about the word motivate, you know, that it comes from um, it, which comes from emotion, which in order, if you think about anything you've ever done, there has to be a certain drive or emotion behind it. And so it's learning about what are my emotions what are the emotions of others, What? how do I manage my emotions, how do I manage some of the emotions of others, how do I achieve, how do I use my emotions to achieve. So it's all of that, of the behavioral piece um, that we use in order to get the work done and, and influence others and, and know ourselves so that we can actually rise above any barriers.
2: And how do you feel that one would be able to improve upon their emotional intelligence in a way that would help them improve their performance at work or advance in their career? Well, as part of the new manager
3: program, I use a tool, a very simple tool, which assesses emotional intelligence. And then it gives you some of, gives you it's normed so you see where most people fall, and you also see some things that you can do, and the exercises so that you can actually try and walk through and see how you can expand and build. Because you can change your emotional. It's not like your IQ. You can actually change that. That is is a pretty rudimentary tool. There are about six much more in-depth tools that are out there. So if somebody was really experiencing some issues around that, and it was becoming a barrier to their performance and growth, that's an area that I would have them look at. Because you really have to look at uh, some form of a tool to assess, to get a view of, this is actually how I behave. And you might, before, before Mark came in, we were talking about some of the surgeons, some of the doctors, and sometimes Um, the behaviors with team members that are not collaborative, that actually shut down communication. And so going through med school, they might, you know, that might have been part of what they've been surrounded by, really tough doctor maybe that had been the person that, you know, had been really their mentor or whatever. And so they take on a lot of those same traits And all of a sudden find that, you know, they're getting called out there. It's not, it's counterproductive. It's not suitable for the team. So sometimes it's that emotional intelligence of, well, what is the emotion? Being able to assess the emotion, then what is a reasonable way to use the emotion? How am I reading the emotions of others? Oftentimes that's not even on their, their landscape, reading the emotions of others. And then what do I do with it? And as an example, I had a person I was coaching and, the, another person, the director that was interacting with her, said that it just would work totally work around her. She was a bear. They couldn't stand it. It was a nightmare. And when she got that kind of feedback, she sat and she cried. And she was like, I had no idea that, that, and she said, but she gave me a little of her background. She said, I grew up as a street fighter. I mean, I grew up in Methuen and I was this place in the family. And, you know, I always protected the people behind me. So she was very, very protective of her staff and her staff were very appreciative. However, it was starting to really be a real barrier for the staff because it was causing problems with other departments. So we would have, we even got down to having exercises where she would like, she would lean into people and she'd like move her whole body and people like, oh. And so we would have her do things like put her hands like underneath herself and count some time so that she actually had to listen and to stay with stay with whatever somebody was saying to listen to what the person was saying and start to really get an awareness of her emotions and then start to be able to develop some control of her emotions and then how was she going to, through maybe a, a better like inquiry, that she was able to share her opinion and listen to others. So that was that's a lot of work. You, know, you can imagine that was her fallback. That's the way she'd gone through life. It's a lot of work for people.
2: Um, so you gave a presentation at the New England Women's Leadership Summit. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, it was on Strength Space Changed. It was using appreciative inquiry. And uh, appreciative inquiry is um, r- really about looking for what's good in um, might be the organization, might be the person, might be the team. And most of it is focused on a future state. And a lot of uh, problem-solving methods look at a current state and then the future state and what is the gap. And appreciative inquiry has a little bit of the neuroscience behind it, that anytime you look at a current state and you look at a gap, that people tend to do this. Well, if IT had done that, we could have done this. Or if HR hadn't had this, we could have done that. And there starts to be a little bit of a some form of a blame. And it allows, or it really doesn't allow, it pushes people into more of a defensive stance. And so taken to the extreme, you think about your sympathetic nervous system when you go into stress, you fight or you flight, or you freeze. And so you don't get your best thinking. And if you're wanting to do problem solving, you really want some creative thinking. So rather than starting with the current state and going to the gaps, because quickly people go to the people, not to a process, appreciative inquiry looks at what's the future state. If it were to be an ideal state, what would it look like? And, and it's about what is the best of, and then you work backwards and you're building that. But there's a piece to it in appreciative inquiry, and they have all these kind of theoretical terms, like they'll say it's poetic or synergistic. It's built on a model, on theory, social constructionism, that means that it's not a conversation and another conversation added together. It's the dynamic of having these conversations that actually elevates it. And they have seen in very high-performing teams that one of the key drivers and high-performing teams would be six positive statements to one positive statement. And that allows people to have inquiry, but also to advocate for their position. So appreciative inquiry builds on that approach. Sometimes it's a bit too kind of soft. People think it's sort of a soft approach, but you always do work back to what are the next steps in place. So it also does build a real enthusiasm too.
2: And you are a certified executive coach, can you tell me a little bit about how you got this certification and how you feel it is applied to your job?
3: Sure. Actually, I'm using it more and more, so has great application to my job. And I hoped I would, and I knew I would, um, but it's it's really so much so that we're hiring this other person, and that's they're also going to be doing a ton of coaching, and that's the area that we're moving into: coaching on continuous improvement, tools, initiatives, and this culture that we're really kind of cultural safety. That we're moving towards so i attended a um, the program was new ventures west and it came out of san francisco but they had a boston-based cohort and it was a year-long program so you would go into boston for four days for residential you did some evening work as well so you would have theory and content but you would be immersed in the coaching so while you were there you were being coached you were always coaching and then you would get a two-month break, and you would have assignments. So there was a lot of reading that went with it. We had, you know, ten books that we had as our kind of our backbone and structure for it. Then we, after the first four-day residential, then we came back and we had to start taking on clients. We had to have four clients, three to four clients, and we. Um, this was for free. And we would coach them, and they had to be willing to be recorded. Then we had to send our recordings in so that we could have an assessment of our recordings. So our recordings would be getting graded according to the models, the coaching models. We learned specific coaching models. So that went on for a year. Then I had to sit and in front of a panel, and they, would, they had invited people in that we had no clue who they were, and they had their own topics, so it was really on the fly. You had an hour or so to meet with them learn what the topic was and then you had you know another half hour or whatever to develop a coaching plan and then at the front of the room in front of your 25 peers and then a coaching panel of four or five coaches that are certified you had to coach them and you were graded on that so you either passed or you didn't oh you either passed or you needed additional work you need additional I needed six more months. I had six more months, which, you know, sometimes not getting what you want is a beautiful thing. I ended up, I had to have a coach for six months work with me. So that was expanding my knowledge. So I had over probably one year of class, six months of my own personal coaching, and all the while I was coaching people here. And then there is an International Coach Federation. This program was one of their sanctioned programs, so you need to go through a sanctioned program, then there are three levels, and I'm at the mid-level of the International Coach Federation. So I have 850 hours of paid coaching. So I needed to substantiate all of that, all of the people that I needed that signed off on because my coaching, for the most part, was here. And also I did a lot of, I did group coaching with the physicians, and I did group coaching at... Rockingham Visiting Nurse Association and Hospice. So I had to get signed off from, and then I also had to get letters of recommendation, and then I had to sit for an exam, and then I got certified. So that was the process for me.
2: Um, We noticed that your list of certifications was quite expansive. You have numerous different ones. In what ways do you feel these have advanced your career? Well, one thing is I never felt good enough.
3: You know, I don't know if anybody, you know, you never felt like you knew enough or you know if I just knew one more thing or if I just had one more whatever and so actually that was part of I played with going back to getting a doctorate and somebody said what are you going to do with it and I'm like at my age I'm not sure what I would do with it but I know I I need it or I want it or whatever so that was it for the certifications and I have to say yes they've all been important and they've all played a role and they've all been helpful in building that knowledge and I really I think the older I get, the more I know how much more there is to know. And I think it makes it even more exciting. So I think sometimes you don't, you think, if I could just get this, you know, and my daughter got her mad. If I just get this, well, now maybe I need this, and so I know where she gets that. But so each one of those have been helpful in and of themselves. So I'm, and I'm happy that I've done that and I've got more planned. So,
2: okay. And which certifications do you feel have helped you the most in your career?
3: I think the coaching one, by far, has helped me the most in my career and in my personal self-development, I think, by far. Um, I think the ones on the 360s have been really incredibly important because in order to get certified in any of these tools, you have to go through these tools. So, you know, you have to get a 360 done on yourself. So in each one of these, I've learned, uh, I've, I've learned what it's like to be the person getting coached. I've learned where my blind spots are. I'm continuously working to improve on those areas. So um, I, th- I think the ones with the 360s and I think the coaching.
2: Okay, awesome. And do you feel that those workshops or certifications are... The ones that you would suggest for new and upcoming leaders, or are there other ones that you would suggest? I
3: think there's lots of them. And I know Mark and I had talked about Myers Briggs. I'm not Myers Briggs certified. I'd like to be because I think that is like, that is a very grounded, solid, um, one that's been here for a long, long time and people reference it often. So I think that's a very, I think that would be really a baseline. I think I would do that. And I think there are lots of good ones. I, I was very thoughtful on the ones that I chose because the company paid for them. So, if it, if I had all kinds of money, I probably would get many more. But I think the ones that I chose were really relevant to the work I do and they're they cut across disciplines, businesses, they're validated and in most times I look for something that has like a healthcare database that is really appropriate for the industry too.
2: And in almost all aspects of your job, You're working closely with people every day. What characteristics do you think someone should have if they desire to work in a position like yours? I think that uh, there's
3: a real, um, I think, your value system. I think you truly have to believe in believe in people you really have to see the goodness in people and want to see the goodness in people and want to be with people and believe that um, it's not a matter of fixing them it's helping them to be the best you might say best version of themselves just to be the best that they can be and I think a lot of it you know I thought about that knowing you were coming and I I think a lot of it is almost a philosophical foundational underpinning in wanting to help in believing that people are, there's nothing the matter with them the way they show up. They're not broken. You're just helping them get over whatever blind spot or barrier to get to the next level. All right, we're going to transition a bit to talk about leadership. What would you say your leadership philosophy is? Well, and I did think about this too. It's like one of those organizational development. It's like, well, that's such a that's such a quick question, but actually there's nothing quick about it. I would say my philosophy because now this is the work that I do and other leaders I'm sure they see it differently, but I do see a real connection to that servant leadership. I do because of the work I do, because of what brings me to this. Even my undergrad days, when I said I wanted to work inner city with kids, it's really about helping people. It's about that, that helper and teacher and helping be, people become the best that they want to be and can be. So I think a leader balances, they, they need, I believe, A certain amount of, to be able to inspire people to want to follow or partner with them and to accomplish what needs to be done for the best interest of the organization or the people that you're serving. So I think it's, we get our work done with and through people and I think a good leader has lots of attributes. I mean, you you have to have smarts and you have to have baseline technical expertise, but that in itself is not gonna get you there. And being inspirational in and of itself is not gonna get you there, but you have to have components. And I think fundamentally, you have to be rock solid on some values and you have to know what your values are and you have to believe in where you're headed enough so that you see the future that when times are tough, People said, I, I, I can see it with you. I trust you. I can see it with you. I'm going there.
1: So you mentioned a few aspects of what makes a leader. What are some characteristics and behaviors of a good leader?
3: And do you aspire to those yourself? I do aspire. I'm always trying to uh, learn more and be more. And I think that the knowledge and the quest for lifelong learning, because I think that there's, you can never know everything. People show up and they, you know, it might be very unexpected who you learn from. And so I think probably the key thing for me would be humility. I think being a humble leader is probably top of my book. I think you can't fudge technical expertise Experience. I think you have to do the grunt work and pay your dues and you have to know what you're supposed to know. That doesn't mean you have to be brilliant or the best of, but you certainly want to surround yourself humble enough to surround yourself with people that are, make up a good team, not to be fearful because they might have expertise that you don't have. So I think you really have to be solid enough in yourself and self-aware that you'll surround yourself with the best be open, willing to learn, let others bring, help others learn. Who would you say you learned this philosophy from? I was, you know, on one of your questions was about what book or whatever. And I thought, oh my God, a book, a book. I got tons of books. Which book? Um, I actually thought about authors, you know, (laughs) I thought it wasn't so much books. It was authors. And this morning I Googled them because I thought, What comes to mind, and it's James Autry, but I'm of the age that was a Gene Autry, and I'm like, no, it wasn't James Autry. And so then I said, well, I've got to Google this guy, and remember what he, and he was from Mississippi, and he was a businessman and stuff, but he used to write poetry, too. Um, But he really started with this servant leadership idea, and he spent a great deal of time in human resources. And he was, uh, he's an author, and he was a journalist by trade and spent a short amount of time, I think, as a fighter pilot. Um, But his um, belief in helping people on the job to be the best that they can do so that they can deliver the best product and they can deliver their best service and helping them to grow, he, I think, about probably 14, 13 years ago, I used his material and I taught some classes here and they were called Spirit at Work. And I use that as the underpinning for some of our management programs. And so people like James Autry, uh, Ken Blanchard, Maxwell, and then into Peter Drucker. And I have actually Managing Yourself over there, this tiny little book from Harvard, which is great, Managing Yourself, Ronald Heifetz. And he's either Yale or Harvard. And it's about being an agile leader, adaptive change. And so those are the people. I look at those, Kuzes and Posner, about really kind of the soul of leadership. So those are the people that really grounded me in what I believe is a, the values-based approach. What are the challenges of teaching leadership? Uh, the challenge for me for teaching leadership is, and you can probably hear it, I get really, the the philosophical piece to me is important. The foundational piece to me is important. And I think sometimes, I know somebody has said, well, it's a little too theoretical. And I think the challenge for me sometimes is that for me is the practical piece. That's the piece that's the underpinning that drives all the other pieces. And I think sometimes that trying to help a, form a connection with others because they may see it a bit more um, pragmatic or give me the tool or I want something tactical, like show me the template of how you do this. And that would be the struggle for me because I tend to come at it from a little more of that theoretical, uh, philosophical foundation first. Can you give us an example of a difficult leadership lesson you had to learn the hard way? Um yeah, I think this is a lesson I continue to learn. And I think that the barriers, I think are oftentimes our barriers in advancing are self-inflicted and created. And I think this is why coaching is so helpful. And I would say the greatest barrier for me has been on a confidence level. And I think a confidence can really... Pull at your competence. You know, you, it's that comfort and that ability to be decisive and being, you know, you, you don't, you still want to be humble and, and not so bold, but to be a little bit bold in that you have greater confidence. And I wished, you know, at my age now, I, there was a way to have learned that a little earlier. So. Awesome. Uh, what do you look for
1: when hiring
3: leaders or elevating leaders? I look for the humility and their lifelong learning, their interest in learning. Um, and I also look at their technical, you know, depending upon where they are, their, their technical expertise. And is that, is that a box that they find themselves in? Or is that really a jumping-off point? Because, you know, numbers and finance, all of that is good, but it's really what do you do with it? What inferences do you make from the numbers that you're looking at, right? So it doesn't really matter. There's lots of, you know, ways that you can get to the mathematical, but what do you do? So what is the critical thinking? That, to me, is probably the most important, not the rote on any of those sorts of things, your ability to follow a template, but, you know, give me some insight into how you think about these things that you do so well.
1: So what is organizational culture and why is it important?
3: Well, I think, you know, you can simplify it and say, what do you what do you feel when you walk into a place? Um, there's something to be said for what is the general assessment and interpretation, what's it feel like, what's it sound like, what are the behaviors. So there's aspects of it that I think we all pick up on when we get in a place. Um, and then you can see over time, um, how those cultures play out and they kind of sh- they can shape the people and much like our strengths when they're overdone uh, they can be barriers and i think sometimes our cultures and i would say we have a we hold ourselves to a high level when i first came here it was sort of a formal culture held to a high level never let them see you sweat never let them that you didn't know the answer which is good when you want to make people achieve But then it's not always so good if you want to share and if you're willing to share that, yeah, I don't really know the best way to do this. And so there's that balance and shaping. So I think culture is really important and it's... um, Sometimes it's bold and sometimes it's subtle. I think it is one of those things that it's both and, you know, you felt something when you came in here, whether you're registering, but there's something, something those two leaders that I met with them and I said, so what did you, what did you feel like? What did you observe? And they said, people were really helpful. People were open to change. People really want to learn. That's the culture we're trying to really engender. How do successful leaders shape organizational culture? Well, I think it starts from the top. And I think sometimes the harder part is when you're trying to shift it. You have maybe the same leaders and you're trying to shift it because we all become part. We contribute. We all make up the culture. It's not just you, it's all of us, it's me too, we all contribute to that. And so if a culture's in place and then we fall in line, so to speak, we're just shoring up the existing culture. So it's like really like turning a ship. It's making those small differences and setting slightly different expectations, holding people accountable for different expectations. So that is a leader's role. And so that really starts at the top too. So for leaders holding their leadership accountable for these same behaviors so if we want to build relationships then we need to be certain when we're walking down the hall that we make eye contact we speak to the person you know it's not if we were seen as very formal and very much hunkered down in our in our offices do we make a point of going out into the cafeteria when it's lunchtime so we can just greet some of the employees so what are the behaviors that what are the things that we do in holding each other accountable
1: did you have a mentor or mentors early in your career? And how did that person help
3: you? I, I absolutely. And I would say my first mentor was when I was in municipal government. And it was the city manager in Portsmouth. And I would say that his mentor, his influence, and he had his master's in public administration. So that influenced me. I went back, I thought about that. And he really had a belief in me more belief in me than I had in me. And so he saw things in me that I, you know, I was just out of college. I had no idea. And so he had a trust in me. He believed in me. And he really um, instilled confidence. You know, he supported me. So that was the very first, you know, that was new for me. And then I had a mentor here that was of a different sort she was uh, in a a leadership role a vice president here and she had sometimes very difficult behaviors with her peers and she was very challenging to them she was very bright and very much a visionary but could take you out at your knees you know she just like we would all be afraid to send an email to her because we could get it back and we'd be sliced, you know. And so it was like you'd read it and reread it and reread it and correct it for punctuation and grammar. I mean, it didn't matter. You were going to get something back. So strangely, she was a mentor to me because I just had the ability to talk with her. And so we ended up in a coaching relationship. And for some reason, she let me in and we used to talk and I would coach her on things. And she, again, saw something in me. And she said to me, you know, you are made for this kind of work. And I'm moving you into this, and I'm moving you into this. And I used to work at Wang, and I used to work over here, and we had departments. And you need more training because that's the world that you're supposed to be working in. And that's the world that I loved. And so she saw something in me. She was very tough and I, people still talk about this person, and they don't talk about this person lovingly. I have a different perspective. It I kind of, it rolled off me a little bit more. That might have been the Polish, I mean, it rolled off me. I I didn't need the loving, gentle kindness as much, so when she would let loose, I just like, and then I would still come back for more. It didn't, it didn't affect me. Uh, But I don't, I wouldn't want to emulate that about her, and, um, but... There are other aspects. She was visionary, she was creative, and she was bold, and she was wicked smart. <laughs> so,
1: Awesome. That's great that you had that relationship. What does a good mentor
3: do? Well, I think what both of them saw and the, the similarities were they saw something in me that I did not see, and they helped me to see it appreciate it and strive for more interestingly one did it in a supportive manner one did it in a sort of convoluted support. If she was supportive because she would send me to any kind of training I wanted you know she you know she just keeps sending me to training she would always like yep you need that you want that you're going Um, but the mannerisms I was able to tolerate it 95% there's one other person here that feels really strongly about her and her mentoring and and he is still really Good friends with her everybody else kind of said no not for me So I would not have adopted that added that her her method of doing it, but I think she saw something in me She went out of her way to help me grow she provided opportunities and she was always there to show me actually uh, she said to me, the problem with you, DeMarco, is you're always too fast, which is still part of my, it, I may not be as methodical. I might shoot from the hip more and go fast. I've learned to, I've learned that I have to double check and, you know, that's why I'm not in finance. That's why I'm not operating on, I move fast and that's not always a blessing. And so, and she would call me on it. How important is having a mentor relationship? I think a mentor is key. And I think it is sometimes it happens naturally. And I think that after a certain place in your career, I mean, you can always once you get in a job, there's always opportunities to mentor people. And I'm proud to say my daughter, she started out. She looks for ways that she can mentor others. And I just think that, you know, we're all in this together. And so the deal is we give back, you know, and so like you reach back. And that's that to me is what it's all about. Great. Do you mentor any leaders now? I, well, I do my coaching role, so there's a lot of the direct coaching. And I mentor informally a lot of people, and a lot of people through the new manager program. I have a lot of new supervisors at CORE. I work with um, I mentioned we have College for America folks and they're in their they're getting their healthcare management and so they haven't gotten an associates this can roll into an associates and can go further and I find that I have a special affinity for people that are really kind of in the very beginnings that haven't maybe been afforded the opportunities and sometimes it might be single moms or whatever I really feel like I'm drawn to helping them to you know move the furthest
2: so. How important do you feel professional associations are for development and are you a member of any professional associations yourself? I am. I have been a member of,
3: in Boston, uh, there are a few associations. One was my coaching association, and then also up in Maine, I'm part of uh, ICF Maine. And those have been very helpful for me because you're with colleagues that can actually bring your skills up even a little higher. And then when you have some coaching dilemmas, there are people that get it and that you can talk with different things. It might be ethical considerations. There's a group in Boston on human resources, a leadership forum. There's a lot of healthcare people in that, so it's, I think it's definitely good to get out of your industry a bit. I think it's definitely good to get out of your geographic area a bit, and to hear what's going on and learn what's going on. Other, it might be you know tools that are available, might be models that are of use, and I think it's just helpful to network, either if it's helping others or just having some camaraderie.
2: And we kind of touched upon this a little bit earlier when you were talking about authors, but if you had to pick just one book that early careers who aspire to senior leadership should read, what would it be and why? Um, uh, how about,
3: I'll pick two books, one from the beginning and one from current. The beginning would be in James, one of James Autry's books, and A Spirit of Work, but it could be any one of his early books. And I think more recent, anything from Edgar Schein, and he's at MIT and Sloan School of Management. I think he may have passed away actually, and but I shouldn't say that. I don't want to create rumors on YouTube. <laughs> Humble inquiry is the most recent. And that so kind of bookends those two. Okay.
2: And what kind of opportunities do you feel there are in the organizational development field and would you recommend it as a career choice?
3: I think there are opportunities. I think there are not I don't think it's like swimming, I don't think there's tons of them. I think it's sort of a niche world. Um, I think some people come in it via HR. Some people come through adult training and development and coaching. So I definitely think there are opportunities. And I think if somebody was interested in that to get in and really to find a good mentor in that field, because I think a lot of organizational development is there's foundational material to read But then there's many of the things the way I've done it with the assessments, going through it, and then having a good mentor that you can work with. I also, I didn't mention, I had a consultant here that I didn't didn't even mention. He actually was, I should have, I was really remiss, uh, a great mentor for me because he was hired by the organization to work as a consultant. And that the woman assigned me to work with him. So I still do work with him outside of the organization. He's had his own business after uh, he worked in Black & Decker and then another company, and then he went out on his own for the past 30 years. So he's been a mentor on the, really on the training development, leadership development area.
2: So we've kind of touched upon everything that we planned on today, but to close, I would Really like to ask you if you had any advice for early careerists, people coming right out of school, and just general advice for them. Um,
3: yeah, I the the two things of advice. One that I said on mine, so mine is a little biased and it may not apply, but it is about knowing, you know, having a certain amount of confidence and. You can't mask competence. You have to have competence. That doesn't mean fake it. That means, but understanding. So there's that self-awareness. I think that is really key. And I think that attitude of lifelong learning, because learning comes in unexpected ways with unexpected people and their gifts and sometimes the setbacks. If you can look at the setbacks that you have, you know, I never would have been in this career. If I didn't have a couple of setbacks, so there are opportunities to learn. So always be open to the people and the events that allow you some learning.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You guys did great.
0: You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, For more information, or to leave comments about today's podcast, look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.